Another horrifying death at the hands of the American police. On January the 7th, 2023, Tyree Nichols was stopped for supposed reckless driving. Five officers pulled him out of his car, tackled him to the ground, and beat him for around three minutes whilst yelling expletives. He died three days later. After the body cam footage was released, politicians declared their shock and people protested in the streets across the country, bringing back memories of the Black Lives Matter protests from 2020. But unlike the killing of George Floyd, the five policemen accused of killing Tyree Nichols are all black. All five have been fired. But if the five men who killed Tyree Nichols are black, can this killing be labelled as racially motivated? Are these just a few bad apples, or is the American police system rotten to the core? Would the often chanted slogan, defund the police, ever actually work? Does the US need a police reform? So let's get to it, uh, gentlemen. Does the U.S. need a police reform? As always, we uh, begin with our quick-fire round of uh, 30 seconds each to help your initial stance on the matter, and we'll pick up the conversation uh, from there. So, Dr. Dibingo, please take the lead. Well, absolutely. We can reform our police system in the United States by first introducing the George Floyd Police Reform Bill, and then we also need to look at having insurance liability for police so that we're actually getting paid out of the police department and their funds, as opposed to the citizens footing the bill for these heinous crimes. And Mark Schulman, your take. I mean, there needs to be some reform, clearly. There needs to be a national database, let's say, of cops who are bad so that one doesn't go from one, one community and goes to another community and gets hired. There are a lot of things that need to be done, um, but um, you know, it's a problem that's continued for many, many years. There's nothing really new about it, obviously. Well, the fact that uh, there's nothing new doesn't mean uh, that it uh, doesn't need to be fixed. No, and as uh, promised, no, yeah, and uh, <laughs> as promised, every tired detective and sergeant uh, Benjamin uh, Salerno is joining us uh, now. So let's cut to the stage. Does the uh, U.S. Uh, need uh, a police reform? Uh, Thirty seconds are answer. Hi, thank you for having me. I, I think we've already established that. We have some time of reform in place. We have body cameras, we have cameras in vehicles, we have new policies and procedures, we have civilian review boards, and we have oversight. Um, we have the release of um, uh, information with regards to police officers from use of force and use of violence. We have civilian review boards that sit down with the, uh, the departments that work harmoniously. Um, we have reviews of, of uh, levels from all the way from municipal yeah. all the way up to federal. So I think we have restarted some type of reform, and, and I think we're still on that way. Okay, gentlemen, before we uh, begin our conversation, uh, we asked uh, I-24 News uh, viewers uh, and followers on uh, Twitter what do they uh, uh, think, and 72% uh, are saying uh, an absolute yes uh, to uh, police reform in the U.S., 28 are saying uh, uh, no, uh, uh, very much in line uh, with what we just uh, heard from you. And uh, on that note, let's uh, please feel free to interact from this point uh, onwards, uh, gentlemen. So perhaps the problem is not with the guidelines, but rather with the criteria police officers are, are allowed or rather required to use the amount of force which is considered necessary and re reasonable but how do you um, uh, assess or what does reasonable mean in practice maybe again something is too vague here mark schulman well, I think the, I think one of the issues, of course, is and look, I know this from the army. You, part of the problem is when one shoots, one shoots to kill. 
And that's a problem in and of itself. I have never understood why at this point, with the technology we have today, police officers shouldn't be able to shoot to disarm, shoot to disable, and not be able to shoot to kill. And I think that would be a major step forward. It both requires new training and new, so maybe some new technology. Um, I, I think... Um, Part of the issue is, of course, who are the police officers and how do we decide who becomes a police officer and are we making enough, uh, are we testing them well enough, are we putting them in psychological testing before they become police officers, uh, are we making sure the training uh, manages to weed out the ones who aren't that good, are we training them well enough. All those things need to be done. I think no one disagrees with that. It's just a question of how much and how well it's done. And, of course, there's a shortage of police officers. On top of everything else, there's a shortage of almost everything in the United States today, but there's a shortage of police officers, and when there's a shortage, you tend to take whoever comes and applies to some extent, not in the big cities maybe, but in some of the smaller rural police officers. So these are challenges that, that one faces, um, especially in a period when there's been rising crime. So, Sergeant Solarno, is it indeed the uh, quality or lack thereof of, uh, of uh, police personnel here that comes to play? Well, well I, it's very hard to stereotype and paint every police officer with the same broad paintbrush. I mean, there's nearly 800,000 police officers and law enforcement officers across the country. And unfortunately, uh, this was a heinous act. There's no two ways about it. But to uh, paint everyone with the same brush or uh, as these as the situation occurs, there are 10, there's hundreds, if not thousands of other positive ones that we hear nothing about. And I think the distance, the difference is, unlike Israel, where there's a national police force and there's national standardization, if you will, here, uh, there's a lot of differences. Yet, I do think there's a lot of similarities. So I was never trained to remove somebody from a vehicle like that or approach a vehicle like that for a, a certain type of car stop. Again, I only know what the media reports, what I've read. I don't have all the ins and outs and all the data on it. But I, I think the consistency with training, that's number one. Number two, the other gentleman said, you, 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 if you use a firearm and you have to resort to that, you do that to, to stop the threat. You know, it, it's very easy to say, well, we, uh, there was somebody chasing somebody with a weapon and there was a white woman and child and they're, they're moving and, you know, um, you know, this is not TV and, and this is not solved in 30 minutes or 60 minutes as a TV show is. This is reality. So, you know, sometimes it, it sounds good, but it, it, it's not realism. And nobody, no officer yeah. leaves their house at the beginning of the day and wants to do harm, you know. This was a, a I hate to say it, this was a couple of officers that had an issue. And there was some uh, regards to their hiring process. Maybe the hiring process was uh, part of the protocol was skipped. But, you know, that's something that's really looked into. Yeah, but Dr. Dibenga, is police behavior getting worse or, or is society getting more vulnerable? Police, uh, what we're seeing now is not getting worse, it's just being recorded. And these things have been happening in our community since the police were in set, in created. I mean, the police were originally created out of the slave patrols, you know, back in the 1700s. So really, at the end of the day, this is a problem that we've always seen. And you talked about issues as it relates to use of force and behavior. Well, the issue has been primarily the use of force has been correct for non-black populations. We see in our society that there's this mentality that you need to do more to subdue black people, more force, more violence. And so that's what we're seeing across our communities. And so when you talk about the system in general, it's an issue that well, what the detective said is right about civilian review boards and other things that exist, but they don't exist across the entire United States because we're so decentralized. And so in places where you don't have that type of community relations with the police, you get situations like this. And so we're not talking about a system of like bad apples we're talking about a culture 
a culture in place where we all know that there's a rise in white supremacists who are also joining the police force. We also know that people are joining certain police forces because they know they can get away with more. And even if you see what this situation is, black officers in our community, we've always said it's not black versus white police officers, it's black versus blue. It's that culture, it's that blue wall of silence, it's that community that doesn't even report many of the hate crimes that happen within our community. So yes, there are great police officers out there, but when we're talking about a systemic issue, we're talking about a cultural issue, we need to do more work to change the culture from the inside. So no, this is not new. This is just being recorded for the world to see, similar to Rodney King 30 years earlier. So Mark Shulman, uh, you're listening to Dr. Dibenga here. Is police brutality merely uh, uh, a symptom and not the problem? Um, to some extent. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a symptom. First of all, it's a symptom of violence in a society. There's more violence in the American society today than there's been in recent years. That's clearly a problem, and it comes to the police as well. And I think we're seeing that. And police violence is, is, you know, official violence that's allowed, so to speak. And that's a real problem, and it attracts people of that kind. I, I think um, the societal problems that we have are very deep, and it requires a, a multi-threaded approach to it. I mean, the same way police violence, and we look at gun violence. Those are not the same, but they're sort of related to some extent. And we need to find ways of, of bringing it down, bringing it to the fact, look, part of the problem with the police violence is to the police, the suspect is the other. The same way that in terms of racism and everything, it's the other, the other. And that's always the problem. It's the other. And we need to find a way that people understand that, no, it's not the other. It's your neighbor. And it's your colleague. And it's someone who you might work with. And it's somebody who you might be friends with. And to find a way of bridging that gap in so many different levels, I mean, I don't have the solution, but that's the direction we have to go in. There'll be less police violence if people didn't look at everybody who they thought was a suspect as the other. And so, I think that's part of the problem. So, Sergeant, in this respect, two points I would like you to address, if, if, you, if you may. If officers will become more reluctant to use a force and or afraid of any legal uh, 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 ramifications, will it undermine their job and as a proxy, um, you know, undermine public safety? And also, perhaps listening to Mr. Shulman here, maybe community policing is is some sort of a, an in-between solution, at least, uh, to uh, um, reduce this uh, um, sense of the other. Well, um, so uh, with respect to the other gentlemen, uh, both gentlemen's comments, I respect their opinion. Um, but, you know, again, we're painting with a broad paintbrush. The uh, sadly situations like this do occur, but there are other issues that have occurred as well with peoples of varied race. So it's not only the, the, the African-American community, it's, it's occurred in other situations. And again, that's not right either, but it has occurred when you look at the numbers and, and you know, go back historically. So to your point, I, I do think, you know, when this occurs, um, law enforcement does feel that they don't have the support of their organizations or of the community and potentially could be less apt to get involved to a degree, although that is their duty, but they're, they're, they may be less apt to uh, take police interaction on their own, um, whereas back in the day, you know, they'd be more willing to get out of a vehicle if they see somebody in an errant uh, in neighborhood that looks like uh, they're committing a crime or just up to no good or something like that, or they're familiar with their neighborhood, which results to the community policing aspect. 
community policing has been around for a long time. Um, in my organization, I ran that unit for a couple of years, and we embraced the philosophy of just what it was, community policing. We were out in the neighborhoods. We spoke to the people. We walked the streets. Not, not drove. We walked and interacted with them. They had phone numbers. And if there was an issue so many times, they would come to you, and there was that first police interaction in the schools, extremely positive. So it's something that's embraced, and again, this is a, a very, uh, at the end of the day, a, a small percentage. Wrong, absolutely, but it's a very small percentage. Dr. Dibenga, in a short time, we have left it to the first uh, part of our conversation. Uh, you mentioned the black versus blue. Will uh, community policing uh, be the way out? Community policing is, is part of it, but we also need to do things like get rid of qualified immunity. And as I mentioned at the top of the segment, we need to look at having insurance, pol insurance policies that are held by the police for the taxpayers on footing the bill. That would make police officers be more mindful of the actions that they commit. Doctors have to have insurance. Other people who have the power of life and death in some way, shape, or form have insurance. And so even though we saw these police officers getting fired, the overwhelming majority of police officers don't suffer consequences. They're protected by the unions, and they end up getting their job again or they go right down the street and get another one. So really when we say that the police don't feel like they're being protected or respected, it's because we're trying to call out a culture where we see corruption and those police officers who are allowed to get away from their department heads, from depending and, yeah. on the mayors and governors. And yet some of them are just trying out to do their job, a complex situation. Indeed, uh, a few minutes break and we're back with the summit. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back uh, to the summit. Uh, still uh, with us, uh, retired detective and uh, Sergeant uh, Benjamin uh, Salerno joining us from uh, New Jersey, from Washington, uh, D.C. Dr. Mikongo Dibenga, professor of intercultural communication at the American University, and of course, Mark Schulman here in our Tel Aviv studios, editor-in-chief of History Central and editor-in-columnist for Newsweek. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for staying with us. We're also staying on topic, but before we get back to our conversation, uh, let's hear some voices uh, from the ground, uh, from uh, Nichols' uh, uh, neighborhood. Let's take a listen. I could be Miss Nichols. I could be Tyree's mother one day. And um, I just held my son yesterday at my solo video. I just held him because it's like, you know, a friend of mine, we were talking, and he said, we all have a story written for us. And it's like, I just don't want to believe that. You know, I don't want to birth my son into this world and then just feel like, you know, one day I could possibly lose him to something like this. It's heartbreaking. Me as a woman of color, I have a son. And it's like, I don't want to stay here because I know my son won't have a chance. So let's uh, get to it. Another quick fire round, 30 seconds each. Is the U.S. police racist? Uh, Sergeant uh, Salerno, please take the lead. Um, that's a very strong term to use, and I, I would say no. Hmm. Sadly, again, as I said before, these are isolated incidents. If you look historically around the country and all the positivity that has come, and uh, the instances of emergency calls that occur um, from childbirth to life-saving measures and, and things that escalate when you get there and are able to de-escalate because there are law enforcement officers there. I, I, I wouldn't say no, the U.S. police force is racist. No, absolutely not. Mark Schulman. Look, the answer is, are there racist police officers? The answer is yes. The fact that there's one is one too many. Um, I wouldn't say that the police force as general is racist, but there are racist uh, police officers, and some people take the job for that reason. Um, it's unfair to the police to call them race, to call all of them racist or most yeah. of them racist, but we have to find a way of getting the few that are not to be off police officers. Dr. DeBenga, your thoughts? It's clear that all police are not racist, but racism is embedded 
in the system of policing in America. It was created from the slave patrols and from that instance on, it has been systemically racist. It means that there are systems that have not been dealt with that keep the culture of racism. There's no system or institution in this country that has not been created with some type of ism embedded into it. And for the police, it's racism. And let's feel free to interact from this point onwards. Dr. Dibenga, allow me to begin with you. Can, can, can crime be ethically predicted? on any level or is everything and anything will be classified uh, as a racist? Did you say ethnically predicted? Ethically, ethically. Ethics. It, no, well, yeah. what, you, what I see is that you get, you get more tension in areas where you put more attention to. So mm -hmm. when you look in the United States, for example, with disparities in drugs, like with the crack epidemic in the 90s, you saw that there was uh, black people who are living in, and brown people who are living in inner city communities were doing crack cocaine at the same rates that white people were doing powder cocaine in the suburbs, but more attention was being put in black and brown communities, so you got more arrests. We also saw that the disparities, there was a one to 100 ratio as it relates to being imprisoned for using crack cocaine versus powder cocaine when the effect was the same. So when you put attention in certain areas, plus when you remove programs in the community, like summer jobs and after school programs, you're going to get more participation in illicit activities. That's why during World War II, we had one of the highest delinquency rates in America because there was not going on a lot going on for the youth. There was not a lot of supervision. And so we see at the end of the day, when you remove programming and then you infiltrate it with different types of things like drugs and the like, you're going to get more crime. That's just a fact. And that's what we're seeing here. But when it happens in black and brown communities, it's treated like a crime. But when it's things like opioid and in, in, in other communities, it's treated more like a disease. And we need to get that same type of attention. It needs to be equal. And we're just not seeing that in our society. And uh, uh, Sergeant Salerno, you're listening to Dr. Dibenga here. Is there any in between uh, between profile, uh, racial profiling and, uh, and trying to predict uh, um, those who are more inclined to crime, so to speak? Um, you know, the term racial profiling has been around for such a long time, yeah. and it's such a disgusting word. Um, there's no racial profiling. I, I mean, again, we would debate that that topic because people will say there is, just like, you know, they, they uh, utilize uh, different figures and everything else. But it's, it's important when you speak to a point that you should be able to back it up, you know, with numbers and mm -hmm. figures and, and time. With regards to racial profiling, it's not racial profiling, it's intelligence-led profiling. So what we do is, if you're looking for something, if you're looking, if there's a burglary trend or a robbery trend or a narcotic trend, you're looking for the intelligence, the information, the supporting documentation, and then you prepare your your, your units, your force accordingly, based on that, the same way you would do an analysis for, for monetary things, or if you're looking at opening a business, what's the best place to do it? But law enforcement, the same way. Look, there's no, there's, there, look, there's clearly some racial profiling. I don't have a Africa, an African-American friend or colleague who hasn't been stopped driving while black, so to speak. And that, that exists, and it really does. And I was stopped once in my life for using a cell phone, and it was quite clear that I was using the cell phone. So, I mean, that's a real problem. It exists. There is some racial profiling. We need to find ways of ending it. Um, but it's not going to be easy. It's the same problem we have, you know, embedded racism. I don't believe everything is racism in life, and I think we over we overstate that. But when it comes, but it exists, and we need to realize it. We need to deal with it, and we need to find ways of compensating for it. While at the same time, listen, crime hurts poor communities the most, and it hurts poorer black communities more than anyone else. So the problem is, how do you 
limit now guess all these other services are the way to go but in the meantime how do you limit crime and not racially profile along the way and it's a difficult challenge that needs to be addressed but has to be recognized as well Dr. Benga, I can see you uh, nodding uh, uh, in approval, uh, listening uh, to um, um, Mr. Schulman. So, how do you get out of it? Out of it. This is a complex situation, and you need a multi-pronged approach. Number one, I'm not somebody who believes in the idea of defund the police, but I do believe in pre-funding the community, meaning that we have to have programs in place that our young people can get access to, that we have to make sure that our schools are places where students can actually feel like they can belong. We need to have summer jobs and other type of opportunities for young people to get involved in. We also need to, as the detective said, we need to have more programs in community policing. We run into a lot of issues because the police who come into our communities don't know the people that they're serving. And so you can never really look at them as people who are like you, and many people within the community look at them as an occupying force. And so when you have those relations, things also start to improve. But when we talk about guns, we also have to look at ways of getting guns out of the community. People can talk about violence in our communities, but in our poorer black communities, we don't make guns. They are brought in from elsewhere, and they are shipped and dumped into our community. So we need to do more to track those and also get them out of our community. So that's this is what I mean when I say it's a multi-pronged approach. And lastly, when it comes to targeting, we have to understand a racial profiling. They had to stop, stop and frisk in New York because the amount of black men that were searched by the police was larger than the actual population of black men in New York City, which meant that the same people were getting stopped over and over and over again. So we just have to have an honest conversation about ways that we can start crime. I believe that criminals need to be prosecuted, don't get me wrong, but we need to do more to make sure that crime is not arriving at people's door by denying them opportunities, importing more drugs and, 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 and guns into the community, yeah. and then targeting them for arrest and other types of form of punishment, and then just saying that's just how they do, that's part of their Culture. And, I believe as a society, we can do better. And Sergeant Salerno, in the short time we have uh, left, uh, as we all, uh, as you all agree, that the reform is indeed uh, needed. Is it best addressed on the federal or 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 local level? I would say on the federal level, let's start there. Let's start at the top down for a couple of reasons. Number one, if, if it starts at the federal level, this is something that can be pushed out to the state, to the counties, to the municipal levels. Number two, that's where a lot of the dollars are. As the doctor said, we had a program in our jurisdiction, Police Community Partnership Program, where we actually had teachers and educators and uh, um, uh, people in physical education. So after school, instead of going home to an empty house at the, at the grades of two, three, four in the high school years, there was a police program. So we, we interacted with them. They understood about law enforcement. Because what do people do when your child's acting up and you're in a mall or they see a police officer out? Oh, that police officer, he's gonna, I'm going to tell him to arrest you. Well, listen, just because you can't discipline your child, why should I? So, and that has happened. I, I'm sure we've all heard that. So I've been down, I tell the child, it's okay, you gotta work with mom or dad, and then tell the parent, hey, listen, I'm not the bad person. Don't advise your child at a young age that because you can't control them. You know, I think it starts at the at home, then from the federal level on down. Yes, uh, restoring trust, uh, first and foremost. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Mikongo Debing, uh, Mark Schulman, and Benjamin uh, Salerno, thank you so very much uh, for your time and insight. We appreciate it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.